Okay, this morning we're studying 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 5 we begin. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 5. It says, But if any, if any has caused sorrow, he caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, too much to all of you. Again, we have kind of an extended discussion of a conflict situation that had existed in Corinth, and it's, it's been kind of an interpretive issue for us all along to try to recreate what happened so we know what Paul's talking about. But there had been a person who had been caught up in some sin that was causing great distress to the congregation. Paul determined that they should deal with it themselves because it was their responsibility to do church discipline. And he thought that if they would do church discipline as they should as a congregation and try to see if they could bring restoration to the fallen brother, that that would be far better than for Paul to come and deal with it himself. So he determined not to come, sent a severe letter, and trusted them to do the church discipline that they ought to do. Now, here, um, what we're going to see here is the person did repent. Since the person has repented, Paul does not name him or explain what his offense was. So we don't know who it was and we don't know what they did. But the person's repented. Paul's not against naming names. But when he does so, it's some people who haven't repented, like Hymenaeus and Alexander. They were still carrying on in their false teaching. They refused to repent. So Paul named their names in order to warn the flock not to listen to them. But on the other hand, if someone had repented, Paul didn't name them. They were to be treated with, you know, they're brought back into the flock and there's no use uh, browbeating somebody over what they already repented of. And we'll be talking about that in this lesson this morning. So the, so the severe letter received a positive response. There's three parties under discussion here. There's Paul, there's the man who offended, and there's the Corinthian church. I, I see I have a note here to read a summary of this. Excuse me while I look for this. Get back to where I was. Right, here's a little summary of this section that we're studying from a guy named uh, Barnett. This passage is concerned with the triangular relationships between Paul, a man who had offended, and the Corinthians. Paul begins by asserting that with due qualifications, if someone has caused grief, it is not ultimately to him, but to you all. He declares that what what is to be done, verses 6 through 8, <clears throat> 1, the punishment by the Corinthians has been sufficient so that, 2, they must now instead forgive and comfort him lest he be consumed with grief. Wherefore, 3, Paul encourages them to reaffirm their love to him. The severe letter, like the present letter, was to the effect that the Corinthians proved their obedience to Paul in which in the present case means their restoration of the offender. Although Paul does not want them to make more of the issue than is warranted, nonetheless they should know that Paul has forgiven 
and does forgive the man, this man. Paul's great concern is the reconciliation of the majority and the minority in Corinth to one another, and especially to him. A wedge driven between the Corinthians and Paul would allow Satan to have the upper hand. Verse 11. Okay, so now there's a kind of an extended discussion and debate about whether the person in, that's being discussed in 2 Corinthians 2 is the same person that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. And so it's amazing how much, uh, if you know the history of theology and biblical interpretation, it's an amazing thing, frankly. There's um, every, just basically every verse in the Bible, without exception, there have been pages written about in church history. And there are pages and pages and pages in theological journal articles and commentaries just discussing who this person was in 2 Corinthians 2, whether it was the same guy in 1 Corinthians 5 that was guilty of incest and turned over to Satan and kicked out of the church. But the fact is, we don't know. Yes? Why is it important who that person is? <laughs> it really isn't. I think it just shows that theologians have too much time on their hands. <laughs> it is, it's, sometimes it's kind of interesting when I'm studying. I'll read, literally, I read, I don't know how many, I read pages and pages on this. And when I get done reading all the pages, because this one, uh, this one scholar was telling all the theories that had ever been put forward about who this guy was. And when he got done, you don't know. <laughs> okay, you could have started. I didn't know when I started reading it, and I don't know now. So, okay, yes. Is there a consensus, though, of whether the guy was guilty of false teaching or sin? Is he a false teacher or he's a sinner? It doesn't. We don't even know that. We don't even know that. Now, in Corinth, it could, easily, it could be either or both, because if you read 1 Corinthians, where we get... Background information: They were they were licentious. They were uh, guilty of going to the pagan feasts, and they were guilty of immorality because that was so rampant in Corinth. Some of the people who become Christians didn't think they needed to repent of their immorality, so that was an issue. But then there's false teaching. It's like in the um, the churches, letter to the churches. There was the um, Rebuke of of this Jezebel. Taught the people to commit immorality. Yeah, because she taught the people to commit immorality. So you had their a moral problem and a false teaching. She was uh, Jezebel, whoever it was, was teaching that the Corinthian, or excuse me, the Christians in Asia Minor didn't need to disassociate from these immoral pagan. Guilds and practices. There were there were literally immoral activities going on within trade guilds and religions and stuff. So it was a very big issue, and Christian teachers had to really teach the people to change and repent because otherwise they didn't see anything wrong with it. It wasn't even it was it didn't make them blush. It was just this is what everybody does. Why do we have to be different because we're Christian? So that was a big issue. So yeah. Teaching and immorality, false teaching and immorality, sometimes kind of go hand in hand. Um, now, uh, having spared you all of the details of who who this might be, um, because we don't know, 
I'll give you the easy version of it. (laughs) It was someone who was in sin of some sort, and um, the uh, church wasn't dealing with it. They were just tolerating it and allowing it to go on. So Paul wrote the severe letter demanding that they do church discipline because if this is allowed, if, if church discipline is an important thing, because if we allow known blatant sin to go on without taking any action, that's saying something not only to the other members of the church, but to the community. It's saying that it doesn't matter, that it's not important, that, it, that sanctification is not something we care about. And so Paul demanded that they take action, but he felt like it was that they needed to do it. So they did. They took action. And evidently, the guy repented. Now, I, I know I've taught through Matthew 18 before, but always remember that church discipline has as goal to restore a fallen brother to the Lord and to the congregation. The goal of church discipline is not to uh, take vengeance and, and punish the sinner uh, because that's God's job. The goal of church discipline is for us to save a soul from death and keep someone from falling off the cliff, so to speak. All right? So now let's go to verse 6, where it says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. We don't know what the punishment was. Generally, if you look at what happened in the case of 1 Corinthians 5, where there was a very serious sin, there's a disfellowship, the turning someone... To kick someone out of the church in the ancient world was considered to turn them over to Satan. They had nowhere else to go. I think it's an interesting... I was thinking about this the other day. There are people who will willfully determine to have no fellowship with any other Christians. For whatever reason. Whether they think other Christians, none of them are good enough to be worthy to fellowship with. Or if there is, if they can't find perfection, they won't have any fellowship. I don't know what causes that, but I do know of people who will not fellowship with other Christians. They sit home, that's their fellowship. Now, I've had this thought when I was thinking about this uh, section. If to be kicked out of fellowship is to be turned over to Satan, to refuse fellowship is to turn yourself over to Satan. Yeah, it's like being a false prophet to yourself. Yeah, we have an article coming out where I'm we're talking about what it's like to be a false prophet to your own self. Yeah, you could turn yourself over to Satan and say, well, we won't do it. That's... <laughs> right, so I'm just... Now, I know there are some people that literally don't have an option. All right? And we prayed for... I don't think I had this on the tape, but if you're around the world and you're listening to us, we pray... We made a commitment to pray for you every Sunday morning here, whoever you might be around the world who cannot find fellowship because you are isolated for whatever reason. Maybe there's apostasy or whatever. And so I'm not trying to heap any any uh, guilt upon you if you cannot possibly find fellowship. But if there is fellowship of people that really do know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, even if there's only a few of them that could gather in a home, and to refuse to have any fellowship with anybody else would be... Why, why put yourself under what was considered being turned over to Satan uh, in the first century? Why, why do that to yourself? Yes. 
is church discipline even carried out any longer? I, I well, mean, it isn't in a lot of. Yeah, let's talk about if, that. If anybody. Yeah, it, it is carried out, but not not as often or as well as it should be. And let me let me tell you why there's a, there's a it's more difficult now than it was then. If you were in Corinth in 50-something or 60 A.D. or whatever, and you got kicked out of the church, you didn't have anywhere to go. All you had was the pagan world, and it was very hostile. You had nowhere to go. But today, you get kicked out of a church, you just go three blocks and go into another one. Well, what I mean is that, I, and I think this is probably the issue that, that comes up most often, is that I have been told, well, is your church very tolerant? I want to go to a church that's very tolerant. And it's usually related to homosexuality. So, uh, so oh. the dilemma for the church these days is that we want to bring in anyone so that they can repent of sin. But what if a person is practicing whatever sin? Is there a method that the church is really following, and do they carry it out? Okay, that's a good question. Um, that is a problem. And, but, but again, it's amazing because of the way things are. If there's some sin that you are not wanting to be delivered from, you can probably go find a church that says it's okay. Um, bring Brian the mic. And um, you it's, should be uh, war- forewarned that that's not in your best spiritual best interest. <laughs> you doing an interview? Brian. It seems like uh, some of the emails and things that you've shared with us is that a lot of the True Christians are the ones getting kicked out of churches, whereas the, the, the churches think that they're using church discipline, but they're actually kicking Christians out of the false church. <laughs> that, that's a, yeah, that's a very good point, and that, that happens continually. And that's not, it doesn't ever tell you in the Bible that if somebody asks for the Bible to be taught and the gospel preached, you, you kick them out. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's a perversion. You're supposed to kick out the heretic, not the one who wants the truth. Yes. I think kind of bringing those two points together, what I've seen in church discipline is that, at least in the evangelical church, what we consider traditional evangelicalism, moral issues are dealt with pretty well. You have Ted Haggard that just got eliminated or removed from being a pastor and being the head of the evangelical churches of America for moral failing. And I think that it would be difficult for leaders to have immoral affairs and be still maintained in an evangelical church. What you don't see, though, is a uh, is that same kind of discipline on false teaching. As long as somebody's moral, they almost have a free reign among the churches to go preach whatever they want to. And uh, so when you have a teaching that's intolerant of false teaching, those are the ones that get kicked out. Because we, we tolerate uh, any teaching, even though we, we draw the line on, on morals. Like Greg Boyd is a good example. On, on uh, his stand on abortion is what caused a great division on his church. Yeah. You could have all kinds of other false teaching and nobody cared. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, um, we have an article out right now on that topic. I, I wrote a... Uh, a an article called Where Are the Elders Who Guard the Flock? And in that, I discuss the same issue because um, usually, at least with the even, you know, the more conservative evangelical churches, 
if you're going to choose elders, you're, you're going to at least find the character qualities. The husband of one wife, uh, not, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not, you know, having a good reputation with those without. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to do that much, generally speaking. But the number one job of the elder is to guard the flock against the wolves. And that one isn't even on the radar screen. Okay? And so, what I said in my article is that you can find people that aren't even Christians that meet most of those other qualifications. But who's going to guard the flock? Yes? Um, One thing that I noticed, and this seems to be true in some ways, um, the... A lot of people don't like to listen to evangelical preachers on the rate on the on the TV TV evangelists because they want money. And one time I was listening to one, and that's all he was asking for was money for his church. Okay, well that doesn't help the gospel by continually asking for money. That's for sure. Okay, let's look at verse six. So vision for such a one is this punishment. Now what is that specified? But they took action as Paul asked him to do in a severe letter, which was inflicted by the majority. So the, the, the church came together and they took Paul's advice and they dealt with the situation and brought some sort of discipline not specified to the offending party. Now, the person repented. So when it talks about the majority, there's an implication that there is a a minority that did that sided with the man against Paul. We know from Second Corinthians chapters ten through thirteen that there are still enemies of Paul at Corinth. There's still a minority that don't believe that Paul should be listened to and that he's a valid apostle. There were these super apostles. They were hyper pious, hyper spiritual. It's interesting that uh, in Corinth their big charge against Paul was that he was not spiritual enough for them. A certain irony to that, isn't there? Paul, we want somebody more spiritual than you. Well, the more spiritual ones were way off base and because they had false teachings. Paul is tender-hearted toward the repentant. Let's look at up a couple of verses. Uh, Daniel, could you look up 2 Corinthians 13.10? I was mentioning 2 Corinthians. And then Judith 1 Timothy 5.20. Actually, why don't you read 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Okay, so Paul wanted them to do their own church discipline, so when he got there he didn't have to deal with them severely. That's what that said. Okay, then 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Okay, so it says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except for the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, the two or three witnesses uh, stipulation is repeated also in Matthew 18. And also, I believe, in 2 Corinthians where it says every fact will be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, so in Matthew 18, you had to have two or three witnesses. Now, what that was about was that 
an accusation is not considered a fact unless there's two or three witnesses. And this was an Old Testament legal principle that's carried over into the New. Now, the reason for the two or three witnesses stipulation was because if somebody had a personal vendetta against the church leadership, all they'd have to do is bring a false or lie about one of the elders and claim that the elder was doing something sinful. And they, if you didn't require two or three witnesses, that would be all it would take for the elder to be taken out of authority and put under church discipline. But that's not to be done. We're not to do that according to Matthew 18, according to 1 Timothy, and according to 2 Corinthians. And therefore, you can't make a judgment based on what you don't know. One witness is enough to claim you know something. Yes. I think, and at the end, it's interesting. There's two witnesses God has at the very end, and they bring charges against the entire world. <laughs> That's a good point. God sends those two witnesses uh, to rebuke the entire world during the Great Tribulation. Okay, so, but notice that uh, the issue in First and Second Timothy was an outgrowth of what Paul predicted in Acts 20. The passage that Judith read said, don't receive an, uh, an accusation against an elder except for the mouth of two or three witnesses. But what, if you do have two or three witnesses, then it says those who sin rebuke before all. Now I've heard... Um, actually, somebody was telling my, my wife a story about this, that there was a church where the pastor fell into adultery. And so what they did, it wasn't that they didn't deal with it, but what they did was they didn't tell anybody what happened, and they quietly sent him off and they said, well, he decided to go do something else. And the congregation was never informed that the pastor had fallen into adultery. And they just covered it up, sent him away, because uh, so, they didn't want to have a, to deal with a flap, and brought somebody else in. Well, then somehow it was found out anyhow, and then everybody was angry with the leadership, which they should have been. Now, what we need to do is just follow what it says in the Scripture. Okay? So the passage that we just read tells us not to do that. Now, it isn't that you're trying to um, get a pound of flesh, so to speak, uh, to tie somebody up and whip them and scourge them publicly because you want to take out your anger on them. But what, you still have that passage in front of you? Oh, I'm sorry. See, you should have known to keep your finger in that, Judah. <laughs> Why don't you find it? Read verse 20 again. 20 and 21, okay. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Okay, maintain these principles without bias. So people in leadership are not supposed to get preferential treatment when it comes to church discipline. But notice that it says the reason to rebuke straying elders before all is so that the others will fear. In other words, so the congregation will think, this is uh, serious. And we don't want to do the same thing. So, but when there's partiality and leadership is treated differently than an ordinary member would be treated, that is bringing temptation and, and, and duplicity into the church. Yes. In actuality, the, 
leaders are dealt with more severely because when you're not a leader, it's, it's more covered. It's when the leadership fail, it's brought to the attention of the congregation. So the other leaders won't want to fail. They'll try to keep, right. but the leaders are dealt with more severely. If you just dealt with them as a congregational member, that's not even good. In the presence of God, and Christ and his holy angels. It's a very strong... That's very severe. Uh, Ryan wanted to say something, and then as you're getting, bringing it to him, I want to remind us, I think I mentioned this last week, that what happened that we read about in Timothy was predicted by Paul in Acts 20. He said, I know after my departure, savage wolves will arise, not sparing the flock, and from your own midst will become men uh, making disciples after themselves. Okay, so sure enough, Timothy had to deal with wayward elders. And so that was on the table there. Yes. There was an interesting um, uh, happening this past year. I was, I'm familiar with the church plant up in the northern suburbs. And what had happened is the pastor, this is a new church plant, started to thrive, and the preaching pastor fell into adultery. And um, I only knew about this because I went on their website and there was a sermon. Uh, they removed the pastor, the elders did, and rebuked him in front of the whole congregation. Huh. And, I mean, that's, I don't know if you put it on the internet or not, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't have the internet in Timothy. No, <laughs> but a couple things. Um, number one is listening to that myself as someone who, is up front preaching the word that caused me to fear, you know, take heed lest you also fall. That's a good point. And the other thing is, is kind of building on what Keith said, they made the very, it was a very good message because they were broken hearted. They, they weren't glorying this at all. This was a broken hearted church. And he says, we needed to do this because this is what the word says we need to do. And then they said, but don't be afraid because if, I mean, this is, an instance that we're rebuking someone in leadership here. And they wanted to make sure that if, if someone had problems or had fallen into immorality, they weren't afraid to go to the church for help for thinking that they're going to have a sermon about this person and how they've fallen. Oh, Be- sure, because it mm-hmm. specifies that you do this with elders. Exactly. So it's a really interesting balance okay. you need to have. Are there any verses how you deal with non-elders? Yes, at Matthew 18. Or even the one we're looking at here. So, for example, then Brian there, for example, what we're seeing in 2 Corinthians 6 is that the person was confronted, he did repent, and now Paul's urging them to forgive him and bring him into fellowship and don't hold any grudge. And he's not named. So Paul didn't name him before all because he was a member of the congregation and repented. And it wasn't necessary to put him up to public ridicule. Now, Matthew 18 would also specify the same thing. If your brother sins, go to him. And if he repents, you've won your brother. It doesn't say you have to do any more than that. Yeah, then if he doesn't repent, you just go to two or three. And if he repents, then you've won your brother. It doesn't go to the church until you've gone through that whole process. But when an elder falls into sin, the church has to be warned. So that they all, so that according to First Timothy 5.20. Okay. Uh, John MacArthur, I, I just got a mailing from uh, his ministry, and he's finished a, uh, a series on this subject uh, in the wake of the nationally 
these these national uh, renowned pastors and stuff that are falling into sin. He's uh, finished a series on uh, how to guard ourselves against you know falling into these types of uh, sins. I think what we should be looking at is the, the fact that we're all susceptible yes. to that type of uh, ordeal. Absolutely. The worst thing you can do is uh, when something like this happens is say, well, I would never do that. Um, there may be some things I would never do because they don't even seem appealing to me, but I should never trust myself. It says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And uh, therefore, we have to be circumspect and say, God, save me from such a thing. Yes. Um, I was late coming in, so if you already said something about this, you can let me know. But um, I've had discussions with other Christians about in Matthew 18, uh, verse 15, where it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And they always emphasize, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and talk to that person privately. But I've always been under the understanding if if I'm a sister in Christ to someone, and maybe they haven't necessarily personally sinned against me, but I'm aware that they're in a sin, then as a loving sister in Christ, I need to confront them privately first about it. But they'll always use this argument that, well, Matthew 18:15 says if they sin against you okay. personally. Well, that's not the only passage in the Bible about it, though. And the other one is Galatians 6, which we're going to quote in a bit. Let's go to the next verse. There are other passages that would indicate that we should try to help our fallen brothers. I mean, you, for one thing, why would you, if you did fall into something, why would you want nobody to try to help you? I mean, a true Christian who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit doesn't want to stay in sin. The Holy Spirit gives us a desire to get delivered. So, yeah, we would like to hide so we won't be ashamed, but we would love to be delivered. Yes. In James 5, the last verse, it says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So when it says love covers a multitude of sins, the reason love covers it is that it confronts it and brings it well, back under Christ. That, that would speak to the thing that Brian brought up. That to, The point isn't tolerate tolerance. We're so tolerant that it doesn't matter what anybody does, but we're wanting people to escape from the snare of the devil. But on the other hand, though, you don't just run around confronting everybody on their faults all the time. So, I mean, where's where's the line? Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> well, I think that when when we take action would be when something's serious enough that it's going to really hurt, harm somebody's own person, their family, and bring uh, disreproach to the Lord. I mean, we all stumble. In, same, the same James says we all stumble in many ways, right? But if any man controls his tongue, he's perfect. So that rules us out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that rules some of us out, anyhow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Dick there. But the fact is that this person straying from the truth has fallen into serious error or of misconduct. Aren't you accused as part of this ministry of being one of those people that doesn't know where to draw a line? Aren't you attacking everybody? Well, that yeah, I'm accused of that because people don't think the gospel is important. 
Um, yeah, I'm accused of being intolerant because if if someone changes the terms of the gospel or teaches something that I see as an attack upon the gospel, and I'm talking about the blood atonement, repentance, the key things of the gospel, what what it's all about, then I correct that publicly because it was publicly disseminated. In other words, I remember when I first wrote this article about, for example, what issue 80 about the it's just a critique of the Purpose Driven Life book. I got a right away. I got an email. Well, did you go talk to Rick Warren? Hello. Uh, he doesn't know I exist. Uh, how, how am I going to go do that? And and I said, well, you know what? My response to this one guy because he was kind of angry. I said. I wrote this article because Rick Warren's teaching came into my church. I didn't bring it in. It came in because some of our members, who remember the story I told at the beginning of that article, that this one of our members was discipling somebody he was that he led to the Lord, and so he felt responsible for the person's spiritual well-being. So he was he was going to the wherever that guy went to church. He didn't want to come down to our church, so he'd go with him to make sure he wasn't being misled as a new Christian, and he ended up in a purpose-driven life Bible study. His friend, who he had led to the Lord. So he went to it with him to make sure his friend was safe spiritually, and they started going through this book. This is before I ever heard of it. And he, he was going, wait, this isn't, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. Every, almost every paragraph, this isn't right. So he, he'd get his Bible out and, and look up every verse that they covered. And then he'd say, no, no, that's not what that verse means. And he'd read it. And he said, not only is that not what the verse means, this is not a valid application. They kicked him out of the Bible study. All right. So then when somebody says, well, did you go ask Rick Warren permission to disagree with him? I said, well, did he ask me permission to sell his books to the members of my church? He brought his, when he went public with his teaching and sent it into churches all over America, he brought his teaching into the churches, including the one that I'm responsible for as a shepherd, and therefore I have to warn the flock that this is coming in. So I don't need permission for that. And that's a, I think there's mixing of metaphors too, because talking about sin against somebody, the sin of adultery, is not the same thing as teaching that adultery is okay. So you have to... Dis- <laughs> me or anybody preaching a different message or corrupting the message of the gospel is to be opposed by everybody that's submitting to the gospel. If somebody's sinning in an action and not promoting that this sin is okay, it's, it's dealt with differently. Yeah, I agree. A public teaching has to be dealt with publicly because it's already influenced everybody uh, that's heard it. Okay? And they can't make a decision about it unless they're given information about why we think that maybe there's some errors being taught. Now, and, and besides that, anybody that is teaching publicly should welcome critique of his or her work. That's another thing that I can't figure out where these rules got changed. I, I, I noticed that when I was in seminary um, in the 90s, that when you read scholarly material, that is the way it always is dealt with. In other words, if somebody writes a position paper, they're supposed to deal with contrary views and then they critique each other and there's a public debate and everybody can read all the literature and try to decide what's right. That's just scholarly. But all of a sudden we're saying, no, I write anything I want, and nobody gets to critique it. They all have to agree with it. Where did this rule come from? That's crazy. You can't learn anything. It's it's anti-scriptural because we're commanded to judge the prophets, and somebody claiming to speak for God 
that isn't judged, then we are sinning and not judging. And the congregations that are deluded and follow them are actually coming under the judgment of the prophet that they accepted. Wow, interesting. Scott, then I, I want to look up some passages here. Or go to the next I was just going to say that Apostle Paul uh, commended the Marines for critiquing him. Yeah, that's a good point, Scott. The Apostle Paul commended the church in Berea for critiquing him. I, I never get angry because somebody publicly disagrees with, with what I write, even if I don't agree with them. It doesn't make me angry. There was a fellow locally, uh, the Steve Lagoon, wrote, wrote an article rebuking me for how I handled Rick Warren in my first article. And he said that I claimed that Warren doesn't teach people to study the Bible, and he proved counterexamples to that because there are places where he did tell people to study the Bible. Okay, and I was just quoting one point where he says what he said. What most people don't need is another Bible study. So I was making a strong point on that, and he said, "No, you're overreacting." I didn't get angry with Steve Lagoon. I thought he had. I'm glad he said that because when I wrote my book, I didn't make that claim in it. Okay, that that was a valid critique, um, and it is true that in some places Rick Warren tells people to study the Bible. So I can't claim that he doesn't. It's a good thing for somebody to point out if I'm missing the boat. And this same Steve Lagoon who wrote the article and published it on the web, disagreeing with me, invited me a couple months later to come speak at his apologetics ministry. It's not like we got enemy status because we have disagreements. Now, that's how it should be. We should be able to critique each other's work, learn from one another, and stay friends. But this idea that if you disagreed with me, then you're a sinner... Is just uh, stifling is stifling learning and discussion. Yes. How do you deal with some of these false teachers? As a matter of fact, I had to respond to somebody, uh, false teachers that um, that will say, "The Lord led me to 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 teach this." The Lord told me to teach this. Yeah. How do you deal That's with that? Really <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. That's really bad. My next article is actually going to be about that. On the next CIC article. Um, the last thing you want to do is speak falsely in the name of the Lord because in the Old Testament they consider that blasphemy. Um, it got you stoned. Yeah, you just couldn't speak falsely in the name of the Lord. And it's one thing. Let me tell you why there's a difference. This will be in the, this article that we, that's written and it's going to be published soon. Um, here's the difference. If somebody is a prophet who's predicting the future, let's say... Somebody says, thus saith the Lord, there's going to be a bigger tsunami this year than there was, you know, ever. Alright? And, and, and there's no tsunami during 2007. They're a false prophet. And therefore, they do not speak for God, do not listen to them, and they should hang up their prophet mantle right now and never do that again. And repent. And repent. They're disqualified. They're not the prophet of God because they have to be 100% accurate when predict, making predictions. Why? Because if they're not, you can't believe anything they say. Because if, if uh, we we wrote an article on this some time ago, but if you think about it, here's a guy who's sometimes right. We, we there, this is a real life example. There was a guy who, in 1999, predicted that Los Angeles was going to fall into the ocean, and he was actually not only predicting it's going to happen, telling people if they live there to leave, get out of Los Angeles now. That's what the guy said. So I quoted him in this article. Now it's 2007. Los Angeles is still above sea level. It's still floating, or whatever it does. It hasn't fallen in the ocean. 
Now, the guy that he made the prediction had given other false predictions before that. But he had given some true ones. So let's just look at this logically. Here's a guy who claims to speak for God. He says Los Angeles is going to fall into the ocean. Now, before you heard the guy give a prophecy, what did you know? Los Angeles might fall in the ocean and it might not. Right? After he gave the prophecy, what did you know? Los Angeles might fall in the ocean and it might not. You didn't gain anything. Zero. It was totally wasted. But he did it in God's name. You can't give false predictions in God's name. That's being a false prophet. But now the other category is judging teaching and the type of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, which is not predicting the future. Prophecy under edification, exhortation, and comfort is something that we can all do. And what that, and as we've claimed in a position paper, what that means is to bring out the meaning of Scripture and make applications and implications. Now, you can be wrong and corrected in that and not be labeled a false prophet forever and ever. Why? Because you have a baseline to come back to, which is the Scripture. Okay? What's reliable is the Scripture. And if you make an application that turns out doesn't really follow, you can be corrected. And you can go back because you always have the baseline what God has spoken. So you're not the one who is initiating the Word from God. You're not, it didn't come from you. It came from the inspired writer. You're just applying it and understanding it, and we do that together. So there's a difference in how you judge that kind of prophecy. You, you compare it to Scripture. A predictive one, you can't judge any other way than the person has to be 100% perfect. Yeah, well, then, guys, if I see, here's what the Bible passage says. Here's what I believe it means. Therefore, we have to live this way. And I just don't get it. My, It's not true what I'm saying. I just made a mistake. I'm not trying to claim that my words have God's inspired authority behind them. I'm just making a mistake in what I've, how I understand the Scripture. If I all say instead, God told me that we have to you know, move out of Los Angeles, now I've taken away and attacked Christian liberty that gives me the freedom to live in Los Angeles, and I've become a false prophet to myself. Yeah. Well, that's a little preview of the article that's going to come out here if we ever get our mailing permit moved over to Hopkins. <laughs> You have to go to like the postmaster general over the whole United States to try to move your mailing permit. So if we have a late mailing, it's not my fault. I wrote the article. All right, let's go to verse 7, 2 Corinthians 2, 7. Um, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now this is an important principle, very important. When somebody does repent, it's very important that the church receive them back and do so in a way that's comforting to the person who's repentant. It's really bad to try to punish a repentant sinner because it brings sorrow and, and, and as it says here, excessive sorrow. Don't punish the repentant. And I, I saw that happen right after I was saved. I, I, within the first year or two years of my Christian life, I was in a little church where, where I was saved, and the first, the fact that it was the church Diane and I were married in, and they were having a guy preaching there, and it was a very strong word, and this was what, the kind of church that had altar calls and, and stuff like that, so they had everybody up. The guy's word was, somebody in this church needs to repent their sin in the camp. And so people were up crying, oh, I think it's me, and I think it's me. And so... And, 
and the organist, it's kind of funny because the organist was sitting there. Back in these, back in those days, if you didn't have a Hammond organ, you, or if it broke, you just couldn't have church. You had to go home. You know? the, the, the organ was, a, was, was always a part of it. So the lady's playing the organ. It was her. And then all of a sudden, she, she just stopped playing and said, it's me. I haven't been serving God and I'm a hypocrite. And she repented, which was, was a neat thing. But there were some people in the church that were mad at her, you know, over what all she had done. And after she repented, I saw these people browbeating her. And they were saying, no, you better not do this and you better not do that. And I don't want to see you wearing those kind of clothes, you know. And, and, and they were just pounding on this poor lady that just repented. She was a young lady, maybe about college age, and I, and, and I was a new Christian, but I thought, you know, that's not right. It's because you have a vendetta that you're mad that she had done this, that, or the other thing. Now she's repenting, and you're telling her uh, you're wanting to get a few licks in after the fact. You know, whip, 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 you nasty sinner. Well, she already repented. Leave her alone. <laughs> yeah, I think it, what I was afraid was that it would embitter her against the, the church. Uh, because she was being, being treated that way rather than welcoming back into fellowship like the father of the, it would be like if the prodigal son came back and the, and the older brother didn't think it was right that he was received back into the family. He wasn't satisfied that he repented. And he wanted his pound of flesh, so to speak, now because it wasn't right that he had all that fun. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Okay, so here it says, but, Forgive and comfort. Give comfort. The word comfort there, parakaleo, is a word we've seen often in Second Corinthians already. And it can mean encourage or exhort or comfort, depending on the context. And here I think comfort is a very good translation. In other words, bring encouragement and comfort that God would be able to help him stand and that he is now received fully back into fellowship and that without any stigma because he had fallen. He's been forgiven. If punishment continues after repentance, there is danger that the person would give up on the church and fellowship altogether. It's too hard. It's too harsh. Now, let's look at a couple passages. Uh, uh, Stephan, do you want to look up Luke 17, 13, uh, and Pauline? Colossians 3, 12 to 14, and Linda, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And that's the one I was thinking of when you were talking uh, and Nicole, I think that that's the passage. If somebody said what, what they said about Matthew 18, you'd go to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Okay, um, Luke 17, 13. And they stood at ropes, and they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So they were repenting, have mercy on us. And they were forgiven. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Okay, so that's how we treat one another as God's people. I've, I've had uh, couples being married before choose that verse as the verse for their wedding sermon. Colossians. I think I've preached more than one wedding based on Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Which I think is, is good because if you're going to get married, you're going to have to learn how to forgive and bear with one another. If you're going to stay married, didn't you? If you're going to stay married, yeah. 
If you're marrying a human being, I guarantee that there's things you're going to have to bear with. And if it's a, and if you're a lady and it's a man, then there's even more, right? No, don't say amen. To that. Okay, Galatians six one and two. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so there is a passage that would indicate what you were asking about, Nicole, that indeed if someone falls into a trespass, the, the ones who are spiritual would try to restore them. But notice it says looking, being... What is it? Taking heed lest you be tempted, I think it says in the King James. Why, why does it say that? Well, because we should never have an air of superiority or think, well, I, could, I would never do that. Well, maybe now. Maybe you'd do something worse. Um, but by the grace of God, there go I, right? That was Galatians 6, 1 and 2. So that's an important passage about also about church discipline, that the church reaches out to one another. Yeah, but that with a spirit of judgmentalism or being holier than thou, but with a concern for the well-being of every member of the body. We need to pray for one another, encourage one another, help one another, because we need it. We're like a family, the family of God. I just have a quick question. Um, in that where it says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, this is just a question. Could that also possibly mean that you could be tempted not to confront them? Because sometimes when when I when I've become aware of someone who's in a sin, <laughs> my first natural inclination is, oh, I want to run. <laughs> like I care about them and I don't want them to be in that sin. But personally, I'm tempted to run the other direction because I don't want to have to deal with the conflict and I have to surrender myself to Christ to really love that person in truth. So I wondered if that could possibly also mean that. I don't know if that passage is, has that connotation, but it's certainly true. I think the passage suggests that we'd be tempted to fall into sin, not to, to, to although we certainly are tempted to not bring church discipline. It's no fun to discipline. Discipline isn't fun receiving it, giving it, or anything else. But if you raise kids and you don't discipline them, then you don't love them. So you've got to take action. Oh, who's, okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, it, in my mind, it's bordering on judging when you look at a lot of people that may be in sin. I would, I would, I would think that maybe the, if the Holy Spirit convicts you to take action, that's probably the best sign of, of when, when to approach a brother that's in sin. Or maybe it's not in sin. Maybe it's just you're judging something that you're not really truly aware of and know the full details. Yeah, it's one thing that we have to be careful of. He's bringing the mic over to Roger. I wrote a, an essay about true and false judgment, and I'll give you the short version of it. Because the Bible says judge not, and then other places it says to judge. And how do we know the difference? So we did a, a Bible study uh, of all of these passages and then try to categorize them. It's, kind of, it's how you do a range. Of, have you ever done a range of meaning study? Is, that's something that, I don't know if Ryan does that when he teaches hermeneutics, whether he has you do that or not. But you take a word, a, a Greek word in the New Testament, find all the different times it's used, and then just look at the context to try to see what does it mean here, what does it mean here, what does it mean here. And then you make categories, and that's your range of meaning study. In this kind of context, it means this. In this context, it means this. And then when you do that whole thing, now people have done that for you, okay? 
A lot of concordances will have these, or theological word books will have range of meaning studies. So that's what I did for this term judge. And then when you get your range, you can see, okay, now what do we learn from this range of meaning? Well, what I learned was this. We, we must judge what we can know, and we must not judge what we can't know. <laughs> and one of the things we can't know is somebody else's motives. I just got, I, I, I get those all, I got an email from somebody who says, well, you wrote, you wrote against theophostics because you have emotional needs yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and there's, there's the, um, the Logos has it, definitely. But, you got, but it's, it's a good process to learn how to do your own. When I was in seminary, they made us do our own and then compare ours to the ones that were done by the professionals and then, and then decide whether we agreed with the professional or not. Of course, the professor threw a few in there where the professionals were wrong to see if we were really thinking. But I, I caught him being wrong, so I got an A. The fellow right. that uh, presented the gospel to me years ago moved to Las Vegas and eventually became an elder in one of the large churches out there. They had a woman standing up and prophesying over people and naming their sins. And then later in the week, she'd call to see if they'd repented. And this happened a couple times, so they um, he instructed the ushers to bring her into the office so they could talk to her and told her she had to stop. And she didn't respond, and the the next service she did it again. So they told her if she did it again, they were going to take, she couldn't worship there. Mm -hmm. Put her out of the church. And so she did it again, and the ushers brought her into the office, and he said, you can't worship here. Next Sunday she showed up, and the ushers wouldn't let her in. A couple of weeks later, he got a call from a pastor across town, and he said, is she under discipline over there? Yeah, she is. Well, she's under discipline here, too, and they put her out of the church. <laughs> she came back, publicly repented, and was restored to fellowship. But we know a couple that recently um, saw something in, happening in the church, and it was a moral issue, and brought it to the attention of the council. One of the leadership people was involved. They whitewashed it, and they disfellowshipped that couple. Kicked them out of the church, not for sin, not for heresy, but for holding people accountable. Yeah, that's then in which case the elders are in sin. Now, let's... Where are the elders protecting? Yeah, where are they? They're not guarding a flock. Now, we got, we're out of time, but I want to make one point based on, on that story you just told us. Why is it wrong to prophesy about what people's sin is? Because... It's unknown. You don't know. That's not how you do it. There was a, some scandals in the, even in the prophet and apostles movement. You heard some of those stories. Well, there's you know, one guy that one prophet prophesied that the other guy was another prophet was uh, in an immoral relationship and it just wasn't true. But it got all over the news. They uh, put strain on his family. And it just wasn't true. It wasn't true. So when it comes to the idea that some Christian is in sin. The biblical standard is to mouth of two or three witnesses. Otherwise, you don't know it. And it isn't something you prophesy about. Okay? So that's false right up front. It's pretty safe to prophesy that the people in church have some sin in their life. Even the <laughs> exactly. Unless everybody's perfected. I mean, it's a safe bet. But we're not going around naming people's sin. Uh, it's none of our business. We had enough sin of our own, but if something's serious, you need two or three witnesses. All right.
Um, next week we'll start with verse 8 and we'll get a little further into 2 Corinthians. See, upstairs we're in uh, Luke 4 today. Luke 4.